This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates yesterday by a quarter point, citing a strong economy. It's the eighth increase since 2015, and it's not expected to be the last. In fact, Fed Chair Jay Powell hinted at one more increase this year and three more in 2019. President Trump criticized the move, uh, once again breaking from tradition of his predecessors not to comment on Fed policy. However, as far as monetary policy goes, Powell has said, quote, we don't consider political factors, end quote. With more on this, we're joined by Peter Connie Brown, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School. He joins me in studio and on the phone, Sebastian Malaby, who is Senior Fellow of International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations and also author of the book, The Man Who Knew the Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. Peter, as always, great to see you. Such a pleasure. Sebastian, great to talk to you again, sir. Yeah, good to be with you, Dan. Thank you. So, I mean, this is a pattern. I don't think this uh, this increase, Sebastian, surprised anybody, nor, I think, are, are you surprised at all of what we're hearing of the reporting of, of future rate increases over the next year and a half or so? No, the pattern, Dan, has been to telegraph these moves very, very clearly. So there was one survey of market analysts that I saw that, had 98% expecting a quarter-point increase yesterday and something like 93% uh, anticipating another quarter-point before the end of this year. So there is extraordinary unanimity in the markets because the Fed has been telegraphing its intentions. Now, what's really going to be interesting is the extent to which um, the relatively new chairman, uh, Jay Powell, who has been in office since February, starts to try to unravel that certainty. He's shown signs of wanting to do that, which in my view is a good thing. Um, but I, I, I will see how far he goes. Peter? Right, I agree with, uh, with Sebastian. It's, it's important to uh, remember just how, how new relatively in central banking history this kind of, of highly orchestrated uh, telegraphing is. Uh, it's, it's a post-crisis phenomenon largely. There were, there were tremors in the 90s and 2000s pre-crisis of of wanting to have a more open monetary policy-making process. But this is really quite a, a, a dramatic departure from those traditions led by uh, by Chairman Powell's predecessors, Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen. So it'll be interesting to see whether the assessment, both from Jay Powell and, and others inside and outside the Fed, is about how successful or not that kind of of uh, forward guidance, as it's called, giving uh, giving those kinds of hints about future policy actions, has been, um, and I think there, that that is a source of, of great controversy among among experts. Some who think that the Fed should absolutely be following something that is utterly externally transparent, whatever its mechanism for establishing that transparency, and others who say, you do it that way, the Fed becomes much less effective mm-hmm. in a pivot, much less effective to respond to crisis, uh, and much less effective uh, at using its uh, the important discretion that Congress has given it to, to create the nation's monetary policy. You mentioned to me before we went on the air that this also is, and Sebastian mentioned it as well, 
This is an interesting time also for Jay Powell, uh, being the leader of the Federal Reserve and how he is kind of running that ship, as it were. That's right. I mean, Sebastian and I have written two different books that come to the same conclusion that's pushing up against an idea that's deeply entrenched from, from a Greenspan Bernanke era, which is that central banking is, is just uh, utterly technocratic. Mm-hmm. Right? That there's no aspect of, of politics involved. And that's, that's simply false as a matter of history. And I think it's normatively dangerous idea as well. What I mean by that, of course, is the little P politics, not, not partisan politics, trying to swing elections in favor of one candidate or another. But recognizing that the Fed is a political institution that operates within a political system. Right. And what Jay Powell has shown himself to be, and Sebastian just wrote a really good uh, uh, piece on this, is a, a, a politician par excellence. Right? He has been extremely effective uh, at, uh, at doing what needs to be done, prepare against what I think is an inevitable uh, heightened assault by President Trump on the Fed. And he's done this in a number of different ways, including by strengthening his relationships on a bipartisan basis with members of Congress. So I'm extremely heartened to see that uh, Jay Powell's political instincts are good and strong, and he's he's not trying to play around with an idea that, no, 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 the Fed just can't be involved in that tawdry business of interacting with politicians and trying to uh, 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 you know, in, in shore up its credibility. Sebastian, give us your thoughts. Yeah, I completely agree with with Peter that you know there's this myth that the way you protect Fed independence is by being a pure technocrat and staying in your ivory tower. In my study of Alan Greenspan and my biography of him, you know, the conclusion I came to was that he cemented Federal Reserve independence precisely by being willing to play political games, to fight politicians as they came after him, to be, you know, I I started off writing that book thinking I was doing, um, uh, you know, just a biography of a fantastic financial statesman. And he turned out to be a mesmerizing politician, an amazing Machiavellian Washington manipulator. (laughs) And that that, 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 that showed up in the way that he, for example, could have influence over the specific uh, picks to be on his monetary policy committee. And I think, you know, we don't, I don't have full transparency into how the choices came about, but we, we do know that, you know, that there were three vacancies on, out of seven on the board of governors of the Fed when Jay Powell was named to office. Three people have now been named to those vacancies, so that by itself is good, that those vacancies were not just allowed to fester, mm-hmm. because as long as you have a vacancy, you have the implied threat that the president might nominate somebody who's going to cause trouble for the chairman if the chairman doesn't do what he wants. So simply by by having those nominations announced, Jay Powell has enhanced his independence. But furthermore, the the individuals chosen are A, respectable, sensible economists with experience, uh, and B, um, in, in at least a couple of the cases, they're thought to be personally close to Jay Powell and therefore likely to bolster his leadership. So that does bespeak this political skill that Peter is talking about. And paradoxically, you have to play that kind of politics in order to be independent of politics. But but, but from a historical perspective, Peter, how new of an idea is this? Is this the norm uh, of Fed chairs normally taking this path in terms of the assignment of people to the FOMC and and having kind of that this political nature about them? We've seen instances of both through history, including with Alan Greenspan, um, uh, where 
you know, in the 1990s, there was uh, the Clinton administration approached a Princeton professor. Sebastian might remember who this is. I'm, I'm blinking on his name. A quite eminent person uh, who said, "Okay, yeah, I'll be a go- for, to be a governor." Um, and said, yeah, I'd be interested in this. And his expertise in particular was on international economics. And uh, uh, during that vetting process, he approached Greenspan and said that he was he was interested in this. And he was especially interested in attending some of these international meetings that uh, uh, the Fed does. Right. And he said, oh, sorry. No, that's 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 my bailiwick with Ted Truman, who was then a staffer. Um, and so he said, well, and I can't function within that sort of thing. So, so right. uh, Alan Greenspan was able to set an agenda, all right, that the... Uh, that caused the Clinton administration to simply react against. There are other great examples from that era as well. But then there's also, uh, from the same time, when uh, Roger Ferguson, who was vice chairman of the Fed, Clinton appointee, um, and uh, and Greenspan at the time said, well, you know, you do what you got to do. I don't have a lot of say, but I'm skeptical of this appointment. Right. You know, he came back right. to, to uh, have a different view and thought Ferguson was an outstanding vice chair. Um, but uh, well, we see instances of both. I don't think, and I wonder if Sebastian disagrees with this, I don't think that we have seen ever a time where it seems to be that the Fed chair is picking entirely right. these candidates. Uh, I'm 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 pretty I'm pretty shocked. Uh, by, I mean, the quality is is remarkable. We don't see this elsewhere in the administration. Uh, Mick Mulvaney's the acting director of the CFPB. He's been a hostile en- enemy uh, of it in Congress, but also in his own life doesn't have a particular expertise around consumer financial protection. Right. His successor has now been named, who is uh, 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 also not anyone with any kind of relevant expertise. Um, and she's not uh, gotten a lot of support, obviously, from Democrats, but even some Republicans have complained about that lack of expertise. They're the Scott Pruitts of the world at the EPA yeah. who want to come in and say, you know, I'm, I'm the uh, implacable enemy to this bureaucracy. And then not only do we not have that kind of uh, polarized ideology toward the Fed, we have people who are being cast in Jay Powell's own image on the basis of personal relationships and linkages uh, uh, of Jay Powell. Um, I don't don't know of a a historical uh, antecedent for this. Sebastian? There was was one story I was told by a White House staff member um, who witness the following. Um, Greenspan was in the White House with George W. Bush, and as they were walking across the room, Greenspan leaned over into uh, George W. Bush's ear and said, Mr. President, there's a vacancy uh, on the uh, Federal Open Market Committee, and I suggest John Cohen, who was the top staff monetary policy person, and Greenspan really liked him, wanted to cement his authority uh, by having him elevated to a policy-making position on the board. And and that worked. Um, hmm. you know, the president did what uh, Greenspan was telling him in his ear. So there are precedents, but of course it's quite rare to uh, find the staff member who's willing to tell you about the smoking gun. But it is interesting to both of you, uh, Peter, I mentioned this before we went on the air, is the fact that uh, obviously that we, you knew once there was going to be an announcement of a rate increase that President Trump was going to have a response, and, and he did, and he was not happy about it. But he also said at the end of his comments that, well, the reason why they're doing it is because the economy is going so, so well. So even though he wasn't happy about it, there was almost even a little resignation that, Okay, I, I, to a degree, maybe slightly, I understand it. Right. I, I don't think as a matter of self-interested policy, from the perspective of Donald Trump, that speaking and commenting on Fed policy is good for him. Right, right. 
I don't think it's good for the Fed. I don't think it's good for America. So it just shouldn't be done, I think. Right. Uh, but uh, Trump is going to be Trump. And so the question is, what are the what are the ways that this could escalate? And I think that comment that he made in that uh, in that 80 minute uh, presser, to the extent that I could follow it, um, and in the uh, just cacophony of news that's breaking today on other topics, um, is is pretty harmless. I mean, it's in, in a sense, it's what Jay Powell said as well. Not the first part where uh, you know he wants to keep interest rates low so that they can pay down debt and the like. Um, but the idea is that you know the, the the economy is extraordinarily strong, and this is what justifies our uh, removing, you know, our, our exiting an, accom- an accommodative policy stance. My fear is what comes next, and that could be getting to Twitter and starting some sort of fight where the Fed is cast as an enemy, both of Trump and the people. And then what happens then thereafter? Not just Trump's reaction, but House Republicans and Senate Republicans. That was their reaction. Right. What's the Republican base reaction? And then what are the hangers-on who, for ideological or financial reasons, just try to feed controversy? What's their reaction? And if we find ourselves in a place where the Fed is cast in that partisan light, where defending the Fed is something that Democrats do and attacking the Fed is something that Republicans do all the way to the top to the president, uh, that's a dangerous thing for the Fed. That, that, uh, that's a war that the Fed doesn't win. It can minimize losses, but it doesn't come off uh, off clean in a fight like that. Sebastian? Well, I think it's true that it's much easier um, to minimize the Trump attacks right now than it will be maybe in 2020 as we get into the election, because by then uh, the fiscal stimulus from the tax cut last December will have worn off. So the economy is growing extremely fast right now. As you reported, Dan, at the top of the program, 4.2% was just confirmed um, for the most recent quarter. You know, when the economy is growing that fast, one can afford to be mild uh, in one's resentment of the central bank. But if it's with the president of of Trump's uh, temperament, uh, if growth slows as that fiscal stimulus wears off, and so that going into the 2020 election, you've got the economy slowing down significantly. Meanwhile, the Fed has by then raised rates a further percentage point or so from where they are now. That's where you can see the president lashing out, as Peter suggests, much more aggressively uh, towards the Fed. And and I agree that although as a sort of first order threat, a direct threat, Trump's power is limited because, you know, the Fed can just ignore him. It can contribute to a climate of hostility to the Fed, which over a longer period of time could prove damaging. Right. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that that's I, I tend to view Trump as someone who lacks discipline and sort of responds to whatever he's seeing sure. on television. Yeah. And I think what's happening yeah. here is different. I was surprised that Trump started agitating toward, you know, expressing expressing his criticisms and doubts about monetary policy in a climate where uh, asset prices continue to set records and uh, and GDP growth is is so robust, unemployment so low. And I think that what's happening here is a table-setting process. I, I, I genuinely think, against what uh, my instincts had been pri- uh, previously, that, that Trump is setting a stage so that when there is bad economic news, he isn't, for the first time, laying that blame at the feet of the Federal Reserve. He's saying, just as I predicted, yeah. just as I said, the Fed is responsible for this thing. Yeah. 
And we've had politicians who've done that as long as the Federal Reserve has been in existence. Um, having presidents launch a fight like that is much rarer. Uh, and uh, uh, and doing it in a public way, I mean, even Nixon didn't engage in that in that kind of a, a very public uh, drag down fight. Is there a, a concern that you have uh, of the impact of that type of scenario playing out, and what then Congress might respond with at, at that point? Because certainly, at some level. Jay Powell or the Fed chair, whoever that person is at that particular time, does go before Congress, does have a responsibility to meet in front of Congress and discuss policy. And therein lies maybe that that dynamic of the impact of the president making those types of statements. And that's where uh, Powell, the politician, is going to have to use all of his powers, all of his talents uh, uh, to try and manage what will be an extraordinary assault on 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 the Fed, and, and when somebody's like, "Oh, on the Fed's independence," and then we have start having debates about, "Well, how valuable a thing is it?" I don't just mean the Fed's independence. I mean the very idea mm-hmm. of having monetary policy executed separately from uh, the other levers of economic policy, you know, fiscal policy, trade policy, financial policy, and the like. And, and if you think that that should not be done, that that separation should not exist at all, yeah, um, then. Of course, the president should be commenting on this, just like he comments on any failure right. uh, within his administration. Um, but if you think there's value to be had by that separation, even if you don't buy into the myth that it's all technocracy all the way down, right? But if you think there's value in that separation, then we should be watching extremely carefully the way that the president tries to allocate blame uh, for uh, for bad economic news, and then the way that the Fed will try to respond to it. Sebastian. One uh, potential saving grace here is that although Congress will no doubt have people who want to criticize the Fed, uh, there'll be a mixed perspective on what that criticism is. There'll be a kind of right-wing hard money faction that says the Fed should be more rule-bound. It should follow the so-called Taylor Rule, named after the Stanford economist John Taylor, and take away discretion from bureaucrats who tend to use it. Uh, to be too loose in their policy. So that's a traditional kind of hard money, almost gold standard, quasi-gold standard sort of critique, which has been surprisingly popular uh, on the right, particularly in in the House Republican caucus. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you've got the kind of Trump perspective, which is, you know, you always want policy looser no matter what. And that perspective tends to be pretty indifferent to whether it's set by, the policy is set by a rule or by the discretion of the FOMC. Um, so you can imagine a situation where members of Trump's party in the House um, are mad at Powell because he's using too much discretion. And um, in a way, Trump making a totally different critique. And in that disunity might lie the Fed's opportunity to divide and rule. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio one thirty two or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney twenty one. Now, stepping back for a second, this rate increase, Peter, and the potential of one in December for uh, the average citizen who doesn't normally follow this part uh, of the economy. These impacts, or I should say these rate increases, will have the greatest impact where? On, on anyone who's trying to uh, finance education, consumption, uh, house, housing purchases, um, uh, car purchases, 
with debt, right? So, uh, a, you know, 25 basis points might seem like nothing. You multiply that by eight, now we've, we're getting somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but the difference on, on financing a home over 30 years is is just thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, so this is a, that's a very big deal uh, on that side of things. Um, for those who are in you know retirement and are dependent on on uh, on fixed income uh, as part of the retirement strategy, then watching baseline interest rates uh, that had been uh, stuck at zero uh, for for nearly a decade now starting to enter, re-enter what we would think of as sort of a normal uh, band is is great news. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is going to affect monetary policy, just like trade policy, uh, is always going to have uh, heterogeneous effects on on the economy, on the society, because people occupy different places right. uh, relative to that creditor-debtor uh, creditor debtor, d- creditor divide. Um, and so this is why it sometimes is hard to imagine, and, and, and it's difficult to see political coalitions that capture that divide, because they don't. Our political co- coalitions have been formulated on different bases, right? right. And so uh, that's what makes monetary politics such a such a fascinating area to study is that it makes it very hard to predict what form those political coalitions can take since yeah. the economic effects can be so varied. And, and really, Sebastian, th- that's part of, of the job that Jay Powell and the other members of the FOMC have to do is really understand what is going on in the economy in general, as Peter laid out, with people that are buying homes, buying cars, you know, thinking about retirement. These are all factors that Jay Powell and his other members of the board uh, of the FOMC are, are thinking about when they are making those decisions about these quarter-point interest rate increases, and how many of them over a certain period of time? Yes, that's right. I mean, in some ways, the Fed is a paradox. You've got this, you know, enormous apparatus of uh, very qualified experts studying all aspects of the economy, and then all of this terrific brain power is funneled into a debate as to whether interest rates should move 25 basis points in one direction or maybe 30, or no, not 30, but 25 or 50, but relatively, you know, sort of huge amounts of effort go into moving one lever, um, uh, and should you inch it that way or inch it the other way. But as, as Peter says, when you multiply it over a 30-year mortgage, um, you know, a quarter percent a year, uh, a, a year may not sound like much, but over 30 years, it, it really adds up. So it has this big ripple effect through the economy. My my feeling, having studied um, the Greenspan period in particular, is that one thing the Fed ought to do actually is to make its job harder, um, expand beyond that set of concerns that you were describing, and also think about asset prices. Because it's one thing if the price of eggs um, becomes unstable because of inflation, but there's also the price of nest eggs. And um, yeah, if yeah. that shoots up, um, it has ripple effects on people's spending behavior. And if the nest eggs go up, but then they crash down, we know from behavioral economics that um, people have risk uh, loss aversion. Uh, and so it really hurts psychologically and also politically uh, if the society is forced to go through a financial crunch because uh, <laughs> losing the wealth you thought you had is actually more painful uh, than failing to gain wealth that you never had, especially yeah. especially since the, uh, the the Great Recession is so fresh in people's minds, having just passed the uh, the ten year anniversary as well, Sebastian. Yeah, exactly. I mean, both the uh, two thousand eight uh, recession 
and indeed the much more shallow recession in 2001 were the product of financial corrections. In 2001, it was the backlash from the NASDAQ technology stock crash, uh, which had caused investment to collapse after that crash. And then that uh, led to a shallow recession. People sometimes say, hey, that doesn't matter. Um, it was so shallow and so short-lived. Yeah, except that it was shallow and short-lived because the Fed responded with enormous interest rate cuts, which in turn set the system up for the real estate bubble and then the bigger crash. So I am of the view that the Fed should be paying more attention to asset prices. And that's something that I think Jay Powell uh, seems to agree with at some point. The fact that he wanted um, uh, Nelly Liang, the most recent Fed uh, governor to be nominated, um, potential Fed governor, is interesting because she, as a senior staff economist, had overseen the financial stability work at the Federal Reserve before. So she comes out of this financial stability preoccupation uh, and uh, I think it'll be interesting to watch how her voice uh, on the board of governors um, affects policy. Peter? Well, I mean, so Sebastian's getting at two of the uh, the really provocative things that he did in his uh, his really phenomenal biography of Alan Greenspan. The first is to highlight that, that, that wealth effect uh, uh, aspect of loss aversion is something that Alan Greenspan had his fingers on since the 1950s, quite originally. Indeed, this paper in the 1950s became a third of his uh, of his dissertation that was uh, finally granted to him uh, 25 years later or something like that. So that's that's a really remarkable thing that Greenspan had been about for a long time. And the second is the idea that you use monetary policy uh, to to burst bubbles in a sense. That's a maybe a, that's a cruder way than uh, than Sebastian would phrase it. That's quite that's quite controversial. Uh, and uh, and Jay Powell's predecessors have have staunchly rejected the idea. As, uh, Bernanke famously called it doing brain surgery with a sledgehammer yeah. uh, because the tool is so blunt. The interest rate policy is so blunt, and the damage done uh, uh, to use monetary policy in response to asset prices. Reaching unsustainable uh, levels uh, is so hard to get right. It's so hard to even identify what an unsustainable level is um, that central bankers just shouldn't be in that business. Sebastian yeah. disagrees, um, and I'm I'm incredibly intrigued by the idea that Jay Powell might be on the Sebastian Malaby side of that debate. I haven't <laughs> I haven't I haven't seen that evidence. Uh, is that just the Nelly Lang uh, enthusiasm that draws you in, or is there other stuff too, Sebastian? No, I think actually you see it in the way that he's been at pains both um, yesterday in his press conference, but also earlier in his big speech at the Fed's annual meeting at Jackson Hole, to de-emphasize any claim of certainty and mm. to say, well, you know, we're navigating by the stars where, you know, we, we want to take away the statement that we're being accommodative um, because we don't really know if we're being accommodative, because we don't know what the neutral rate is. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of emphasis on what the Fed does not know, which uh, translates into not reassuring markets too much uh, about what the next step is. And I, I think, uh, so it's partly that, it's partly the Nelly Lang appointment, it's partly just anecdotally from friends of his, I've been told that he is interested um, in the markets. He came, after all, from the private sector, um, uh, admittedly, private equity is not the same as being a hedge fund trader, but um, still, I, I think he's somebody who is keenly aware of the effects of 
financial cycles. Um, now, what you do about them is, is a difficult question. Mm-hmm. I would tweak the Bernanke metaphor and say that um, to raise interest rates to fight a potential bubble is not like doing brain surgery with a uh, sledgehammer. It's like treating brain cancer with chemotherapy. In other words, yes, there are other effects on the body which you're not going to like. Uh, and that's true. If you raise monetary policy, raise interest rates, you're going to reduce employment and reduce um, economic growth at the same time as you potentially reduce the, the danger of a bubble. So you have to be careful about using that chemotherapy. But I would say that in moments where the economy is growing above the normal trend, which is true now, where employment is very full, which is true now, uh, but where you have some concerns about what asset prices are doing and whether there's too much debt building up in the financial system, um, then you should be thinking to yourself, what's the trade-off? And, uh, you know, raising rates a bit um, and trying to squeeze some of that um, extra borrowing out of the financial system won't cost you too much in terms of the real economy. Sebastian, great catching up with you again. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Peter, great seeing you. Great seeing you. Thank you. Peter Connie Brown from here at the Wharton School. Sebastian Malaby uh, from the Council on Foreign Relations. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.